are listening to the Freeform Rock Podcast with Mark Alden Taylor. Hi, welcome to another edition of the Freeform Rock Podcast. And Lee, are you going to the hospital? What's going on? Well, I was going to the hospital. What I have a virus, and um, let's just say it's down in an area where, um, let's say, when they kick in the nuts, it's that kind of feeling. Uh. <laughs> Except instead, it's the nuts well, well like balloons, and it gets kind of freaky, and. So um, it was okay when I lay down or sit down if I don't squish them. <laughs> but um, but then now because I got anti-biotics uh, um, and stuff. Well, I was talking about because there were sirens when we started <laughs> talking. <laughs> I thought they were already coming to oh, get you. Oh, well, believe it or not, and it's kind of funny and it's kind of not funny, some of the people who live in our building are really, really um, older um, folks who, um, on a day-to-day basis, some, one of them might pass away. Uh, it's, it's, it's not. But um, other times, it could just be someone just needs um, medicine or something. I have no idea. Oh, okay. So today, yeah, I have no idea. Today we were supposed to have a guest with us, but he kind of flaked, so let's do this ourselves. We're doing Queen 2 from 1974, but before we get into that, we're getting back to our newer artists of the week this week. So this week you picked Cat Clyde the Meadow, and I picked a newer band that's been talking to us on Facebook called Triceratops. Uh, we have played them before, but we will play them again because they gave me a new track called Earth mother it's kind of doomy and black sabbathy so it's pretty damn cool so here we go here's cat clyde the metal and triceratops earth mother on the freeform rock podcast
Okay, that was our newer artist Spotlight, Cat Clyde and Triceratops. Let's get into this album. With Queen 2, I couldn't believe how much work we put into that. I think we felt we were evolving our own sound. We were pioneering this sort of multi-tracking thing. It gave you a tremendous palette. You could get massive choral effects with just three of us singing. That's when we sort of uh, first really got into production and went completely over the top. You know, there's a track on there called March of the Black Queen. Very long, it's in about 11 different sections and, and the complexity of it is staggering. I mean, the tape was literally transparent. The 16-track, two-inch tape, and it was... Um, the oxide was compl almost completely worn away. We'd gone over it so many times, so many overdubs and bounce downs. It literally was transparent. It was really only with Queen 2 and Seven Seas of Rye that we had the breakthrough. We realised that really the easiest way of getting a hit album is to have a hit single that has some musical validity. The key to that was uh, the stroke that was pulled in getting them on top of the pops when Bowie dropped out, and it absolutely broke that single. It was a very underwhelming experience, the very first time, because there was a strike on at the BBC. So it was shot in the weather studio. It was great fun to be at Top of the Pops because it was sort of all happening. You felt like, you know, you were, in a sense, becoming part of public consciousness. Top of the Pops was incredibly uncool. It was rubbish uh, because nobody was actually playing. There was about 75 teenagers which were herded about the studio and a bunch of aging disc jockeys presenting. Pans people were there, these very glamorous girls dancing, you know, it was a lot of fun. The BBC actually had a set of plastic symbols that went when you hit them, so it didn't, it didn't make any noise. I think that sort of says it all, really. I suppose it's true to say we had slightly mixed feelings about Top of the Pops, because it wasn't very cool, but it was the great vehicle for selling records, so what can you say? It had a, quite a big impact, I know, because our record went straight into the top ten. So, obviously, the impact was huge then. We had this song called Seven Seas of Rye, but it's a universal truth that more groups break up because of songwriting arguments than anything else in the world, because your songs are your babies. The person who's written the song tends to be the one person who sees that one song all the way through from the idea they have in their head at first, you know, the final production, you know, the sounds on everything and the mix. Most of the time I have a clear picture 
of what what I want, mm -hmm. and I sort of have a lot of Sage Rogers parts and uh, what uh, Brian should do and things. They are rows, of course. I've probably never spoken about this before, ever. But I remember the Seven Seas of Rye thing. You know, it was Freddie's idea. He had the, this lovely little riff idea on the piano. And I think all the middle eight is stuff that I did. So we definitely worked on it together. But when it came to the album coming out, Freddie went, I wrote that. And we all went, OK. Because <laughs> you know, it didn't seem like that big a deal. But Freddie said, Look, you know, I wrote the words. And uh, it was my idea, so it's my song. The sort of unwritten law was the person who brought the song in would get the credit for writing that song and the money for writing that song. Much, much later in Queen history, we recognize this fact. Before our connections go wild, I don't know. It sounds good so far. So this is Queen's... Yeah, that's weird. All right. This is Queen's second studio album by British rock band Queen. It was released on March 8th, 1974 by EMI Records at midnight in the UK and Electric Electra records in the U.S. It was recorded at Trident Studios at Langnam One Studios, London, from February, the February to August 1973, <laughs> with co-producers Roy Thomas Baker and Robin Cable, and entered, entered, and engineered by Mike Stone. This is described as arguably the heaviest Queen album. Hmm. So, let's get into this this masterpiece. I think it is. I don't know what you think about it, Lee, yet. But All right. We will, you will. We will find out. So, we get into the first track called Possession. What do you think of this? It's just an introduction and nothing great, but 1,000 times better than Fanfare from The Elder. <laughs> this is an introduction to the next track, Father to Son. Uh, let's see what Wiki says about it. Possession is a short instrumental piece, a funeral march performed by Brian May on multi-track guitar. He recorded it by overlapping parts on the Red Special through John Deacon's custom-made amplifier, amplifier, the Decay Amp. Roger Taylor also contributes to this instrumental using only a bass drum pedal. So, mm. that sounds I pretty will cool. Say, yeah, I will say really quickly that at least um, for something that's, that sounds a lot better than than a, a Kiss song, and the fact that Brian May did it by doing overdubs and Kiss's piece, they didn't play on it at all. <laughs> you you, you kind of know who's the better band. Yeah. <laughs> Kiss isn't the best band of all. They just got the makeup and the freaking uh, yeah. pyro that gets kids yeah. going, woohoo, Kiss! Yeah, but I do like Kiss. <laughs> yeah. I do like the 70s Kiss, and I do like some Vinnie Vincent and some early 80s kiss but after that it's just shit to me uh so let's get into the next track which is father to son which is the first track you picked off here so here's father to son by queen on the freeform rock podcast
That was Father and the Son. Why'd you pick that track, Lee? The beginning sounds like Tommy by The Who, and it isn't something I liked, but then the song changed and got heavier and intense and wonderful and sounded even better than some of Led Zeppelin. The best parts of the song are the best moments on this album. Yeah, this is a great song, great second song, and I think Possession and Father and the Son should have just been one track, but I think they like to divide it for... uh, you know, monetary <laughs> reasons. Yeah, yeah. More publishing. Uh, this is yeah. a great song. It rules. And what is what do they have to say about this on Wiki? It says, Father to Son was written by May and features heavy metal sections as well as a quiet piano part, which May played. Like the preceding number, Father to Son has parts with May on multi-track guitar played through the Decay amp. I think it's, yeah, Decay amp. It, it is written in father's perspective when talking and thinking about his son. Queen added father to son to their live set list immediately and heard extensively, but the song was dropped from the set list in 1975. Although it was performed a few times in 1976, the song covers a two-octave range, Mercury, a G3A4, and Taylor, G4A5. I have no idea because I'm not a singer what those octaves are, but my fiance Diane would, but she's not here to answer us. Do you know what those are, Lee? Um, yeah, like A might be the root note, like the, and then if it were um, C octave, it might be da. So if it's A, it might be da 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 da. And if it's C, it might be da 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 da. 
you know, so it's it's just it's like it's like going from one to the other, like like doing a complete almost like an ABC but but with its own language. Oh, it's like uh in uh, Saturday Night Live, when uh, Dana Carvey played this composer, I forgot his name, he goes, Give me a C! Give me a bouncy C! Da, 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 da. <laughs> yeah, 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 like that. Yeah, like that. I guess there's a bouncy C and there's a non-bouncy C, or my balls are not bouncy. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get to the next song, White, Cru- White Queen As It Began. What do you think of this one? It's an interesting song. And I would have liked to hear the English folk music vocalist Sandy Denny do it. I like it a lot better than some of Queen's other ballads. I think it's it's such a melodic song. I love the acoustics of May, and May is amazing on this track. And Wiki says it's written by May in 1968. The song features contrasting acoustic and heavy metal sections. That's what I was just talking about, the acoustic and freaking it gets hard and shit. I love that. Oh, yeah. May explained that he conceived the idea of the song while reading The White Goddess by Robert Graves. The song, you ever heard of that book? Um, yeah. In fact, I might have even, um, read some of it. Um, it's, it's like a, it's a collection of, um, articles about poets. He did one, The, The White Queen, and then he did one called, I think, called, um, The, The Black um maybe the the something about the like like not the black king but like like something the black something and that was also good it's where he would say this poet might be considered good but maybe some of his poems aren't that good then but it's a really entertaining read cool i i don't read that much but when i do read oh. i do read <laughs> yeah and um. and you, you probably wouldn't like um, graves because he's talking about stuff that you wouldn't even be into which is poetry well you are into lyrics like da 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 I'm into Neil I'm into, po- I'm into the poetry of Neil Peart <laughs> like you're into la da 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 how wonderful the world is and you think that that guy needs a Nobel Prize and I like there was a man from Nantucket who <laughs> said he liked to uh-huh. fuck it you know <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, yeah, that's, now now you're talking some I can dig. All right, and it says also the song had personal significance for May. He drew inspiration from a fellow student whom he revered and thought represented the idea of the perfect woman. In an interview, he later said, I remember being totally in love with this girl from biology, and I never, ever talked to her. I was dared to ask out this girl, and she became a lifelong friend. It's very strange. It's oh. A, go ahead. Um, Go on. Um, this sounds like you uh, trying to talk to. Blue... This sounds like you trying to talk to the waitresses with tucked in shirts. Oh, okay, cool. I double dog dare you to go ask one out. <laughs> oh, okay. you can do it, Lay. You got it, man. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Me and my big balls. <laughs> the song features May playing his Hartfield acoustic guitar. Heart Fred, Hair Fred, acoustic guitar. The guitar has been had been given as a replacement for hard hardwood bridge, chiseled flat with a small piece of fret wire placed between it and the two strings, which lay gently above. The strings produced the buzzing effect of the sit of a sitar. It says the white cream was also performed regularly 
between 1974 and 77 and was performed in London in 1978. The song was also performed at the BBC in April 1974. It had a similar feel, feel to the live version of the song because the piano being omitted from the album version. Oh, okay. All right, so then we get to the next track, Someday, One Day. What do you think of this one? It sounds like they studied the acoustic side of Led Zeppelin III and did a song that would have been better than a few of the tracks off that album. It's maybe more in the middle for me. I don't love it or hate it. I just sort of can deal with it. I, I like this song. I love the acoustics. I love the melody leads that Brian May does. This is a great song. And this is the first song sung entirely by May on lead vocals. It features May on acoustic guitar and electric guitar. And the last guitar during the fade out features three solo guitars. This kind of complex guitar arrangement is typical of May. However, usually the guitars are harmonious. But in this case, all the guitars play different parts. Oh, okay. Okay, and then we get to the next track, Loser and In, which was your next track you picked off this album. So here's Loser and In by Queen on the Freeform Rock Podcast. You're bound to be the loser in the end. 
Okay, that was Loser in the End. And we get to the next side, which, on the, if you have the vinyl, the first side was called the white side. The second side is and called the black side. We didn't review this. We didn't. We did Loser in the End, didn't we? Oh, we didn't review but, Loser in the End. All right. Why'd you pick that track? We played it. I know. Why'd you pick uh, that track, uh -huh. Lee? This is probably the overall best song on here. And if Roger Taylor had done a solo album at this point, I would have been interested in hearing it. Because he seemed more genuinely the guy in Queen who could be depended on to do a straightforward rock song. Even if the other songs on the album had orchestral flourishes and all that. So yeah, thumbs up for me. I mean for him. Yeah, it's this is, let's see, what where's my notes? I said, love Roger Taylor. He kicks ass in this song. I love his voice. There's, I think there's only what, one song he does that I don't like, and I can't remember it right now. But Loser in the End was Taylor's sole okay. con contribution to this album as both songwriter and lead vocalist. The original handwritten lyrics of the song were almost lost in 2004 when they were nearly shredded, and now the oldest example of handwritten lyrics in the Queen archive. So now I'm going to flip this bitch over. We were on the white side, now we're going on the black side. If you have the vinyl, which I do, which at 180 grams sounds amazing, I must say. And mm. we picked four tracks. You picked two tracks, I picked two tracks this time because I almost forgot about the great Ogre Battle. So here's Ogre Battle on the Freeform Rock Podcast.
That was Ogre Bottle. What'd you think of that song, Lee? It's more flourishing and fanciful than just a straightforward rock song. It's more like a moment from some type of play or movie musical. It isn't my favorite here. I'm surprised. But I find it only okay and not great. This is a progressive fucking metal rock freaking pop. Fucking, it has everything in this track. This is an epic song. I fucking love this song. And it says, on. It says Mercury wrote Ogre Battle on guitar as confirmed in by May in several interviews. In 1971 was the earliest song in Queen's set list despite 
not being recorded until the Queen T sessions. The band did not want to record it for the first album, but rather waited until they could have more studio freedom to do it properly. The ogre-like screams in the middle are Mercury's, and the high harmonies at the end and chorus hook are sung by Taylor. As the title suggests, it's the story between ogres and features May guitar solo and sound effects to simulate the sound of battle. The beginning of the song and the end of the song in reverse, including the song Final Kong, which then played backwards at the start of the song, creates the building of a building wave sound. The ending gong flows into the next track with the added clock ticks. He says, this is one of Queen's heaviest works. The guitar riff, along with Taylor's drumming, gave it a very thrash sound. It was a long-time live favorite. The song was last played in 1977. News of the World Amer- North American tour and performed at every concert up until, up until that tour. This is a fucking great song, and I fucking... I didn't know that shit about this song. They, You know, I, actually, I have an interview by Queen that we're going to put in the beginning of this... Uh, episode about okay. the making a queen two and it's really good they they said this is the first album they really got into production and you could really hear the production quality on this fucking record it's so good and uh let's get, oh yeah it's really fucking good and then we get into the next oh. track which is fairy the fairy fellers masterstroke what do you think of this song this is more something that i can get into it is flourishes and it's fanciful too, but it has the kind of psychedelic Beatles-style charm to it, and it reminds me of the Kinks too. I'm thinking I would have been interested in hearing what Donovan would do with a song like this. I think he could have done something really well with it. But he's so wild about saffron. Oh well, but well, then the very fellers master saffron stroke. <laughs> All right, I love the piano and the stomping beat, man. And I said these guys can record, and then I watched that little uh, snippet of how they recorded this album. Freaking, you could tell they were totally in production on this album. It says Mercury was inspired to write Fairy Feller's Masterstroke by Richard Dad's painting, The Fairy Feller's Masterstroke, at Tate Gallery in London. For the intricately arranged studio recording, Mercury played hopsichord as well as piano, and Roy Thomas Baker played the castanets. Taylor called the song Queen's Biggest Stereo Experiment, referring to the intricate use of panning in the mix. It says the song, like most of the album, features medieval fantasy-based lyrics and makes a direct reference to characters, vignettes, detailed in the painting and in Dad's companion poem, Elimination of Picture, and its subject called The Feller's Master Stroke. Characters include Queen Mab, Wagner Will, and a Tatermalian and others, the use of the word queer, uh, I'm not saying it right, in twice repeated line, what queer fellow has no reference to Mercury's sexuality, according to Taylor. In some markets, mm. the album included a fold out cover with a reproduction of the painting. Author Neil Gaiman wrote the painting and the album on his blog. Pretty cool. Mm. I didn't know. Oh, that. okay. And then we get into the next track, which is Nevermore. What did you think of this one? Um, just filler and didn't do anything for me. Yeah, I think it's, it's like the first two tracks. It's a, it's a beginning to the March of the Black Queen. Mm. And they just probably separated to get it into, you know, more publishing on this. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think it's cool. It's melodic, and it's the start to march to the Black Queen for me. The previous oh. track ends with a three-part vocal harmony from Mercury May Taylor, which flows into Mercury playing the piano. The piano carries on to the opening of this track, making Ogre Battle, Fairy Taylor's Masterstroke, and the current track into a medley. All vocal parts are performed by Mercury, added some contemporary piano ring effects as well. These effects were widely suspected to be synthesizers. However, they were created by someone plucking the piano strings while Mercury played the notes. Nevermore is a short ballad written by Mercury about the feelings after a heartbreak. And then we get into the epic song on the album. One of the, ep the what, there's two epic songs on the album with Ogre Battle and the March of the Black Queen, which I picked. So here's the March of the Black Queen on the Freeform Rock Podcast.
of love and joy. In each and every soul lies a man very sad to see and But even till the end of his life, he'll bring a little Before we get into March of the Black Queen, wasn't that cool how when they didn't have synthesizers, they would sit there and pluck piano chords and make up? Yeah. It says, yeah. Now, now everybody has these sounds recorded and they could just go hit a button and do that. But freaking musicians had to work to get weird sounds like the Beatles putting tape on their tape, you know, like masking tape on their tape yeah. to get muffled sounds. It's like weird. It's yeah. Like, there was more like uh, creativity back then than there is today. It's just easy oh, for definitely. People. In fact, um, <coughs> I didn't even watch the Grammys because I figured I I didn't want to be even more depressed about music than I already am before I watch it. But you know, like um, uh, my my family was watching and they seemed to be getting into it. So it's like I'd better not watch it because then I'll get even more angry because they like it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, the Grammys suck. I heard uh, 
somebody told me, my fiance told me that her friend told her that Travis Scott was wearing the tortoise and the hare shirt from uh, the Rush uh, counterparts, counterparts uh, concerts. And I was going, shit, fucking, yeah, I bet he doesn't even know that. And then me and Marshall, Harold, was getting into a debate about it. How do you know he doesn't like Rush? Come on, that guy doesn't know who the fuck Rush is from his asshole. Ugh. Right? Do you think he knows Rush? Well, he might know how to rush a poop coming out of his <laughs> asshole, you know, yeah. and he might know how to rush to get the toilet paper, wiping it up before he goes on stage, but as far as whether or not he remembers to zip up his pants, he... He might not remember that. Yeah, so what did you think of March of the Black Queen, Lee? Uh, this makes Ogre Battle one of my favorite songs by comparison. I mean, maybe if Jethro Tull had done something with this and made it more interesting, like their own album of Passion Play, then we'd have something, but it just doesn't do anything for me. All right, I love this song. It's one of my favorite songs of the album. This and Ogre Battle are the. This is a perfect song. It just kicks ass. I fucking love it. And in a 1974 interview with Melody Maker, Mercury, who had been working on the song even before Queen formed, said that the song took me ages to complete. I wanted to get everything to be self-indulgent or whatever. The multifaceted composition, the band's second longest at 6 minutes and 34 seconds, is one of hmm. two Queen songs, the other being Bohemian Rhapsody, containing the polyrhythm polymeter, two different time signatures, simultaneously uh, what 8 slash 8 and 12 slash 8 in a sampler polyrhythm around the up-tempo section which is very rare for popular music the lead vocals cover two and a half octaves G2 and C5 the song segues into the next track how funny how love is the song ends with an ascending note progression which climaxes Ooh, he climax in the first second of the floating track uh, that's pretty cool and then we get to the next song, hmm. which you picked, Funny How Love Is, right? Um, I was actually going to pick it, um, but um, you only told me two songs. But, but actually, in my mind, yeah, I, I picked it. But um, how did you know? I thought that's what you wrote, man. That's what you told me. Oh, oh maybe, maybe um, I... Wrote, wrote that and then I sent it and forgot that oh, I... Oh, we already it. did Father to Son and Loser in the End, right? Yeah. Okay. But, 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 but I like Funny How Love Is. Okay, that's... Why do you like that song, Lee? Well, I actually can like this. It's like Queen Goes ABBA, but in a good way. It's a catchy song and I don't mind it. Let's see. Loser in the End. Did we do Loser in, We didn't even take a break for Loser in the End, did we? Oh, oh yeah, yeah we did. did. Oh yeah, we yeah, did. It's okay. I'm just making sure because I'm an idiot sometimes. All right, and uh, what did I say about this song? Da da da. Best. Uh, this is a cool song, and I love it. It's freaking awesome. And I would wait. Best. Yeah, this is a cool song, and I love it. Yeah, that's what I said. About it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that would have been a good track to pick too. And uh, yeah, while yeah, why don't you do somewhere every single song you write the same exact notes that way in case you miss what you said about one song you can just read from the other song but then someone else who does that might go uh wait a minute i want to i can't find the notes for this he said well didn't you write oh this is great and he went, yeah but i can't find the notes for it anyway but you already write for all the hundred other songs i know i can't <laughs> find it 
And when he finds it, he goes, okay, now I found it. That's, I like it. It's great. You know? This is funny. Well, funny how love is, is was is created in the studio. Mercury wrote it and played the piano while Robin Cable produced. It was produced using the wall of sound technique. The song is written in the key of C, which goes up from an E minor chord in the March of the Black Queen to a C chord in this song. The song was never performed live, largely due to demanding high register vocals for Mercury throughout the song. And now we get mm -hmm. to the last track off the album, which was a huge hit on this album, Seven Seas of Rye. What'd you think of this one? It's better than the March of the Black Queen, but <gasps> not by a but not by a lot. <laughs> Sorry. This definitely is the filler track for me. What? I love this song, Lee. Uh, it's like classic I mean, Queen. I mean they, they, they play it well. It's just I'm I I'm thinking just the I just don't like the song that much, but okay. they do play well. But I actually prefer some of the more acoustic songs on here. Yeah, this was the first hit that Queen made. This is the out song that propelled the album when they played Top of the Pops, in which I will play a video about that in the, in the beginning of this podcast. Uh, this is classic Queen, probably the only song that that closet Queen fans will know who just have the greatest hits albums they won't know uh, ogre battle they won't know all these other great songs out this album because they only listen for the hits and those are the people that could go suck it and i freaking yeah. love this song it's a great song it's a great single and it said mercury had half written seven seas of rye at the time of the recording for queen's first album so a short clip of it was included there however when queen finished the song it ended up being much different from what they first envisioned. It was the band's first hit single peaking at number 10 in the UK charts. The song, like many of the songs on the album, and Queen and Sheer Heart Attack, is about fantasy world named Rye. The song became a live favorite throughout Queen's existence. It features a distinctive, abrogated piano introduction on the Queen 2 recording, the Abrogados, how do you say that word? You probably say it. Um, what, 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 uh, um, a-R-P-E-G-G-L-O-S. -G -G oh, um, um, a, a, what, what, what is it again? A-R-P-E-G-G-L-O-S. I've heard this word before um, and I'm not saying it right. Well, A-R-P-E-G-G-L-O-S. Albergesios? Arpegless? Something like that. Yeah, I've never even heard that word. It sounds really weird are played with both the right and left hands an octave apart where on the Queen recording and most live performers Mercury played the simpler one-handed version of these apagios I think it's apagios oh oh or apagio well yeah yeah okay those are like like when 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 you play really fast okay the theme also appears at the end of it's a beautiful day reprise on the album made in heaven 1995 this version ends with the crossfade instruments blending into a sing-song style rendition of I do like the be to be beside the seaside. The Seven Seas of Rye is also mentioned in another Queen song, Lily of the Valley from Sheer Heart Attack. In the lyric, messenger from the Seven, seven Seas of Rye has flown to tell the King Rye he's lost his throne. Yeah, um, I will say that um, I was listening to the bonus stuff and then um, they had like this remixed um, extended version of Seven Seas of Rye. And I, I had already heard, like, the whole album, and I was just sort of dozing, and then I 
kind of was sort of awake, sort of maybe not not paying attention, like almost asleep. And then all of a sudden, like I'm I'm hearing this. Uh, have you ever heard the the remix? No, I don't think I have. Um, um, it's 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 um, it's 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 like like um the the music you hear when you're looking at an aerobicized commercial. It's like da 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 da. Like and and it's electronic and I'm like, what's this? And then went, oh that's weird and seven sees a rye seven sees a rye and it's oh and I thought that's that's I mean it wasn't horrible I mean if it was on an album of Britney Spears and Avril Lavigne favorites, you could put that on there and it would work. But on a Queen album, it would be like, like if 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 you ask for a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and they give you a sandwich and you start eating it and you went, oh, most of this is really good. The peanut butter is fresh and the jam is really nice, but what's that weird flavor? And they go, oh, well, fish sauce. And you went, ew. <laughs> It's kind of like they put fish sauce on the peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Kind of like that. This is what uh, Brian May said about Queen 2. When Queen 2 came out, it didn't connect with anyone. A lot of people thought we'd forsaken rock music. They said, why don't you play things like Liar and Keep Yourself Alive? All we could say was, give it another listen. It's there, but (laughs) it's all layered. It's a new approach. Nowadays, people say, why don't you play... Like Queen too, a lot of close fans think that and still <laughs> like the album a lot. It's not perfect. It has imperfections of youth and excess of youth, but I think it's one of our biggest single step ever. And then Roger Taylor said, I hated the title of the second album. Queen 2 was so unimaginative. And then Roger Taylor also said, that's when we really, really, first really got into production, went completely over the top. Federer Mercury on this album said, on the concept of side white and side black, well... That was a concept that we developed at the time. It doesn't have any special meaning, but we were fascinated with these types of things. The wardrobe that we used at the time described it perfectly well. And John Deacon said, The most important thing to me was Queen 2 album going into the church, especially satisfying that since the first one didn't do so well. It's nice to see some recognition for your work, though I usually don't worry about much. Roger tends to worry more about what's happening on that side. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) So that was Queen 2. Let's see something here. And it was produced by Warren Thomas Baker, Robert Cable, uh, Freddie Mercury, lead vocals, backing vocals, piano, hopsichord, Brian Maid, electric guitar, backing vocals, acoustic guitar, lead vocals, bells, piano, Roger Taylor, credited as Roger Meadows Taylor on this album, drums, all but eight, <clears throat> backing tracks, backing vocals. Lead vocals, additional vocals, gong, maramba, percussion, John Deacon, bass guitar, and acoustic guitar. And oh, also, wow. let's see where this album has done. I need to scroll up to the charts. The charts in Canada, it peaked at 40, Norwegian 19, UK 5, US Billboard 249. And in United Kingdom went gold. United States went gold. I think this will probably be platinum by now, but they probably need to recertify it. Mm. But this okay. Is, the first three Queen albums are so metal. I love them. Oh, well, my favorite. Um, I was going to say Sheer Heart Attack. It, it might be the first album. I'm not sure. The Sheer Heart Attack is three. 
Oh, okay. It's after the song. But album. what I mean is, as far as my favorite. And that, that album had Stone Cold Crazy, you know. Dun, 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 yeah. Dun, 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 I like dun, that one. The first thrash song, man. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, so, Lee, so before we go, we got to get out with our tracks of the week. And yep. yours is Deep Purple, Ring That Neck, and mine is Cheap Trick Live. From 1980, Gonna Raise Hell. Oh, cool. cool. Yeah. So, before we go, Lee, do you do you know what you're, we're going to do next week? Or you're going to make it a surprise? Um, I'll, I'll probably make it a surprise, because it's right now even a surprise to me. <laughs> All right. Until <laughs> next week, Lee, say goodbye, Lee. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. And here we go with Cheap Trick, Gonna Raise Hell, live from 1980, and Deep Purple, Ring That Neck, but Deep Purple will be first, Cheap Trick will be second. All right, take it sleazy, not too easy. Bye-bye.
Now let's get into the promos. Hello folks, this is the rock sponge Terrence Reardon of the Terrence Reardon and Friends Podcast. Join yours truly every week as I look at a different classic rock and or metal album that had an impact on my life and or rock music in general, and I'm usually joined by a friend or two. And there's no country or rap or techno bullshit on the show, because I hate those fucking music genres. Techno and rap and country sucks. So if you want a kick-ass rock and roll podcast, check out the Terrence Reardon and Friends Podcast every week on YouTube and now on Podbean and iTunes. So yes, folks, I'm available in two different, three different ways. Podbean and iTunes for the audio and YouTube for the visual. Thank you very much. From New York. Hey, 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 hey! What up, bangers? From North Carolina. Skitter pal, meow meow. This is Bushy. And the Mountain. Tune in every week for your listening pleasure only on the plug with Bushy and the Mountain Man. You can find us on Podbean and iTunes. Thank you very much. That's right, bangers. Cold beer, hot women, loud music, and copious amounts of hairspray and spandex. Every Sunday, 9 p.m. Eastern, the Big Bushy Power Hour is the biggest party on that metal station.com. You haven't listened to Mars Attacks podcast? What are you waiting for, man? Host Victor M. Ruiz brings you all types of hard rock and metal-based podcasts. You'll find everything from music-based episodes, interviews, to series such as ultra-sexy classic album series, where some of your favorite musicians, producers, journalists, and show hosts comments on the albums that push the evolutionary chains of hard rock and metal. Get with it and go to MarsAttacksRadio.com to find out more. Punch it! Get blasted! Hey, this is Lee Gerstmann. And if you like to hear some stuff that's like, you don't know what it's going to be, and even if it's stuff that I don't even know what it's going to be, check me out on what I call the Lee Gerstmann Show. And it's just me doing reviews or me doing horsing around or whatever I'm doing. Check it out, please. are listening to the free form rock podcast with mark alden taylor <laughs> 